Hello and welcome to the November 3rd edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Anthony Bardaway and I'm here with my colleague, Romeo Kokratsky. How you doing? This week's episode is going to be different in that it'll be very much built around a single topic, which is electoral politics in Ukraine, or as the case may be, the lack of electoral politics in Ukraine. Ukraine is, you know, it's a it's a functioning democracy. But during the during the course of the war, during the course of martial law, we have not been having elections. And the election was actually scheduled for late October. But because of the war, that election did not happen, and it will not happen until the conclusion of the war. Well, at least normally. Um, but as we'll be discussing, there are a couple of options that the presidential administration is looking at to overcome that issue. Yes, and many of these questions about holding elections are due to a lot of external pressure. There's nobody saying directly. Well, I wouldn't that say Ukraine a lot of external pressure. Not not a lot. Some some external pressure. It's specifically None external of this pressure has... from a single, determined, and very loud group. Yes, if we're of course talking about the Republicans, including Mitch McConnell and such, there's some talk coming out of Europe, but it's not coming in the form of any demands. It's more, wouldn't it be nice if Ukraine held elections, but we're not taking that thought any further from there. Uh, but at the same time, there is some pressure on the Ukrainian government because of its reliance, American support in particular. So here's what we're going to do this episode. First, we're going to give the reasons why these elections aren't being held. Apart from just the legalistic aspects, there's a lot of very good reasons why elections hard to have right now. And then we'll be going into what some of the answers to this may be percolating within the halls of Benkova and the government to see what can be done, seeing as how this war doesn't have any end in sight. And then we're going to go into more of a deep dive into what Ukrainian politics are. Um, and ideas about if these elections were happening, what would be the result? And when they eventually do happen, what are some vague ideas that we have at the moment, even though we're talking about the far future? But to get into this, we're going to first talk about, like I said, why we're not having this election. And the first and direct answer is the law. According to Ukrainian constitution, the parliament cannot be replaced during the course of martial law. There are some questions about the presidency, but the parliament itself, there's, there's no doing that. That's just a constitutional issue. There's explicit language in the constitution that prevents this. To have this election would involve violating the constitution and in order to change the constitution, that also can't be done during martial law. So in order to amend the constitution to allow there to be elections during martial law, it would have to no longer be martial law. So circular problem right there. But to me, I think that the biggest concern why there cannot be elections is safety. In most all of the country, every single inch of this country, is vulnerable to attack by Russia at any time. If there is going to be a day where the Russians know that there will be large gatherings of people at municipal buildings, at schools, at any kind of public building that elections happen in, the Russians very easily could attack one of them to cause a mass casualty event. And that is just as things are far, far away from the front, 
in you know Lviv or Zakarpattia or Kiev, where there is not a direct threat from the Russian army. Even then, there's always missiles. And then we get closer to the front line. There is that direct threat of artillery shelling. Like there's already some severe prohibitions on not direct legal prohibitions, but definitely in the form of you don't have large gatherings of people the closer you get to the front. That's just not something you do. That could be concerts, large public gatherings. These are all very dangerous targets for the Russians, as we saw, for example, in even a funeral in Kharkiv Oblast where the Russians killed, what, 53 people. So this is the direct threat of death is enough to make me and everyone else nervous. And then if you look beyond the front lines, then obviously there can't be any elections there. If you look at the occupied areas, those are Ukrainian citizens behind enemy lines. And if there's any kind of election, they are by definition excluded from it. This is a huge percentage of the Ukrainian people who have no access to the Ukrainian government in any form. And if there's any kind of election, that is a large chunk of the country that does not have a voice at all. Not to mention the millions of Ukrainians that have gone abroad. Even if you set up voting booths abroad, you're not going to capture even a fraction of those millions. Fundamentally, you cannot have a representative election during wartime when part, part of the country is occupied. It is, quite frankly, fundamentally impossible. Yeah, you can even say that you can have these voting booths in foreign countries. There is an expat vote. A lot of countries have expatriate voting. But Ukrainians are scattered all over Europe, all over the world. Are you going to have polling booths in every town in Poland? Are they all going to have to show up to the Warsaw Embassy all at the same time? All hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians in Poland all showing up in Warsaw on the same voting day? <laughs> That's an absurd thing to ask for. And not to mention, if you extend this to countries like Canada or the United States, which are just like large, they're just geographically, they cover large amounts of territory. And you set up a voting booth in D.C., New York and L.A., you're like people are not going to be able, especially if they're refugees, uh, they're not going to be able to travel large amounts of distances to attend to these voting booths on one day. It's not really possible. It's logistically would be a nightmare. Yeah. And in the meantime, are there supposed to, are these elections supposed to be competitive? Like there's going to be, so one question in any kind of election is the extent to say how much the government has control over the media and the potential of other political forces to form. And right now, Going too hard against Zelensky is, I wouldn't say you're not allowed to do it, but it does feel a little bit odd to do it. Like, how, how can I explain this? So a, a, I would say quirk of Ukrainian culture, and we'll probably get it, get into this in more detail when we get to that section, is that there is, there are kind of acceptable ways to complain about uh, politicians, especially, especially Zelensky, even Zelensky. And one of those ways is to critique their, not so much them being president or their actions in president, but 
things and things they do that seem to be in favor of only growing their own power. So, for example, it's fine to critique the replacement of one minister for another if that minister seems to be just a political puppet. Um, it's not okay to, for example, criticize his handling of the military. Well, you can do that, uh, but it's not a very popular position. You're not going to be arrested for doing so, but it's simply not politically a very popular position. According to the latest polls, Zelensky still enjoys broad, broad, broad support across all of Ukraine. So the the being outright against the president and all of his policies will likely not really be taken well by the populace. Even if there is legitimate critique of Zelensky involved, that critique has to make sure it doesn't overstep into seeming petty, um, into seeming like a political grudge instead of something actually rooted in governance. Flip side of that is for new political forces to form, they're kind of busy at the moment. Like the leaders of Ukraine in the future right now, they're in the trenches, they're delivering aid. Like there is it all there is a certain level of again we're talking about social attitudes it is treated as kind of rude to show your hand too much right now as to your political ambitions yeah it just seems distasteful yeah it seems distasteful like there are protests in kiev every single week on i think it's saturdays of people who are protesting against the city government because they're uh, uh, putting too much of the budget towards like beautification programs, planting trees, that kind of thing, instead of diverting it to the army. Like the idea of normal politics happening aside from supporting the war, again, really have to emphasize this is not a matter of, you know, censorship or something so much as it being seen as kind of gross. So for someone right now to be too far ahead of themselves with their political ambitions would be seen as, like I said, like rude more than anything else. And to go back to the media question, martial law specifically consolidated um, or under martial law, the Zelensky administration used its emergency powers to specifically consolidate all of the biggest news channels in the country. And Ukraine is still a country where the vast majority of citizens receive their information from television news. The the emergency powers allowed the Zelensky administration to consolidate all of the biggest news broadcasters into a single into a single newsroom into a a single uh, a broadcast. We call it the TV marathon because it has run without stopping since the start of the full scale invasion. It is quite literally a TV marathon of nothing but war news. So that quite literally puts the Zelensky administration in direct control of the main media outlet in the country at the moment. Um, and it, even if there is no interference by the Zelensky administration in the editorial content of the, of the, of the TV marathon, there's no real way to prove it because the administration has direct control and influence over this marathon. They can quite literally say whatever they want and, the station has to carry, even if they don't do that, the fact that they can invalidates the the measure as a free space for speech entirely. And I, I don't mean this, and I want to just clarify, I don't mean this in a negative sense. It's martial law. There are 
certain restrictions on information that can and should be shared in public, especially when we live in the 21st century and everyone and their mother seems to enjoy playing uh, backroom intelligence analyst. But the fact remains that for a representative democratic election, you need a free press, you need a free speech, you need free media. And that's simply not the case at the moment. Yeah, and the, the television marathon, I really wouldn't call it, you know, explicit endorsement of Zelensky, but it is kind of purposely, I think you can call it optimistic, like can fully understand why, like the state TV channel is not going to be screaming from the rafters of how everything is a disaster, but that when you have this media in place that does want to tell people that things are going okay, that will, of course, naturally favor the status quo, and the status quo is Zelensky and the Serpent of the People Party. Nothing, you know, tawdry about it. That's just a natural consequence of it. And we've been talking more about this side of things, how it would be a less than competitive election. That's not reason not to have an election. Like you can, you know, Hungary has elections, Poland has elections, and those are places that had reduction in the competitive competitiveness of elections due to deliberate actions by the government. And in Ukraine, we're just talking about the natural consequences of, you know, a war where a fifth of the country is under occupation. The real reasons why you cannot have this election, though, are what we talked about earlier, the legal aspects of not being allowed to, and the safety aspects of if you did, people would die. People would die. I have no doubt in my mind that if there was an election, there would be at least one polling station that would be hit and people would die in that polling station. And what would be the result? We'll get into more about the internal dynamics, but Zelensky would win. All the polling says Zelensky would win. Not only would Zelensky win, it would probably be a runoff election against Poroshenko. It would be the same election as last time with the same results as last time. Only this time around, we'd have dead people. We'd have people who are not represented. We would have all these other complications that would delegitimize the results of the election. Therefore, bad idea to have it. Now, that doesn't mean that people in Bankova aren't pushing for this. Um, just yesterday, or yesterday as of recording time, an article came out in my paper, uh, New Voice, about the Bankova's efforts. Bankova, of course, referring to the president's administration in Kiev. It's Bankova Street, just like we refer to the White House as the seat of the U.S. president. Bankova refers to the seat of the Ukrainian president. So Bankova has, in fact, introduced a bill in parliament, or rather, Zelensky's parliamentary party, Servant of the People, they have introduced a draft bill that would amend a portion of the law on martial law to allow presidential elections. And the, the, it's, it's quite an interesting article because the, the methods proposed are both straightforward, but obviously made in a way that that, that can be easily rigged. Um, what I mean by this is, so under the, the current legislation, um, like Anthony mentioned earlier, Parliamentary elections cannot be held just constitutionally at all. There's, again, explicit language in the Ukrainian constitution that prevents parliamentary elections during the duration of martial law. So that's period. You cannot have them. You cannot introduce bills. Laws, after all, cannot supersede the constitution of Ukraine. You need a constitutional amendment to do that. So you, you simply cannot. Have them. 
However, for presidential elections, the situation is not clear. There is no language in the Constitution that restricts the that restricts presidential elections explicitly like it does for parliamentary ones. Instead, the Constitution simply has the typical language that a president's term is valid for five years and, of course, lays out the process of dismissing and selecting a new president. Um, the law on martial law, which is just a law, um, is the law that governs, as you probably guessed from the name, the administration of martial law in Ukraine. Now, this law, and again, not a constitutional provision, but a law, so in the legal hierarchy, it's a little lower. It ranks lower on a question of how much import legal force does, uh, does this have, but mind you, it's still law. So this law does have language that explicitly prolongs a president's authority if it expires under martial law, and it says that this authority cannot be terminated until the conclusion of martial law. So the bill that the Servant of the People Party has drafted, and I believe it is currently, it hasn't come up for a vote yet. It's simply kind of sort of being passed around and is in um, backroom negotiations with other parties in parliament. So this law called the On Amendments to Some Legislative Acts of Ukraine Regarding the Organization and Holding of Elections Referendums or the Organization of Voting by Citizens of Ukraine in Election Referendums in Certain Territories. Yes, it's very wordy. Ukrainian laws are very wordy like that. Uh, so this bill uh, allows for a, A, it amends the law and martial law to remove the language about automatically extending the president's authority under martial law in order to allow elections to be held at all legally. And then it proposes a system for including or excluding certain territories in Ukraine from participating in these elections. Uh, what that means is basically, the bill would provide the, the Ukrainian authorities with a way to kind of judge whether an area is safe or not to have elections. For example, uh, if you had a polling place in Zaporizhia, it will get hit. If you have a polling place in Kherson, it will have, get hit. There's, they're just not that. They're protected, but not to the extent that Russia couldn't get a couple of drones through. And you only need a couple of them to cause a mass casualty event. Um, so this this bill would give the authorities a way to kind of choose, okay, so Parisia's off the table, but let's say Ternopil Oblast is fine, something like this. Um, however, the way the government does this is quite obviously designed to be gamed, or at least it is that way in the draft bill. And again, I do want to clarify this is a draft bill that has not been put up for voting. It is a, just a piece of paper that some MPs wrote some stuff on and are showing it to other MPs to see if they can get support for it. So this just a just a bill on Capitol Hill. Yeah, just a, just a bill on Capitol Hill. You you can't even say it's gone to Capitol Hill yet. They're still at the barbecue place in some corner of Adams Morgan discussing what the bill should be. So there's there's no guarantee that this bill will be in any way representative of the actual law that gets passed if and when that law actually is passed. So I just wanted to preface that because it's very important. This is not a thing that is happening. This is a thing that may possibly happen, and some MPs would like this system to be implemented. So, and again, since this bill was made by the president's party, it probably will get his support. He doesn't have a mono majority anymore. You would need 300 votes to pass this bill, but his party is 235. So they still do need to, you know, court some non-serving the people MPs to, to really cap this off. So just my understanding of this bill is that if a 
local region is safe, then they could possibly have local elections. But this still does not, in the language of the bill, it doesn't specify that. But my understanding of it is that you still can't have national level elections with that system. You can't have a national level election where people in Lviv and Zakarpatia can vote, but people in Kherson and Kharkiv cannot. And even if this bill passes, that's not a national election. I mean, fundamentally, it's not, though legally, who knows? Um, But also importantly, this bill, so the mechanism by which the authorities would choose which regions to include or exclude uh, depend on the recommendation of a temporary special commission that would be established by the by the president's office in order to and that recommendation would be passed along to parliament to decide whether or not given territory would be included or excluded um obviously though since the president's office appoints the members of this temporary special commission there's literally nothing stopping it from there's literally nothing stopping the president's administration from simply including it and staffing it entirely with its own people. In which case, there is going to be no way to distinguish a region being or a territory being excluded because it is unsafe or excluded because it is politically unsafe. Those two things get muddled up immediately. Uh, And again, there's no way to untangle this because the members of the commission are, of course, appointed by president. And of course, in the final law, and if, if there is a final law, this may very well change and this TSC idea may very well go by the wayside. But this is what the ruling party has proposed. This is they would like to see. Let's let's put it this way. I don't see that standing. I don't see that standing all the way to the finish line. Yeah, there's no way um, parliament simply will not allow such a, a thing to happen. MPs are famously territorial, and in fact, there is a faction in Parliament led by uh, Dmitry Rozumkov, who was the former Speaker of Parliament, that opposes this bill quite explicitly. Yeah, like, so that answers our question of, is it possible to hold elections? And the answer seems to be yes, but it'd be a complete mess that nobody would like and would probably be very politically loaded. And even though we're receiving a measure of pressure to do it by our American partners, those American partners probably wouldn't like the only possible solution that they're asking for. So, so yeah, let's make it clear. Overall, it's a real bad idea. Beyond the external pressure of the this kind of really small group of GOP congressmen in D.C. that that are pushing for this, uh, Bankova is worried about uh, a domestic constitutional issue. Um, So remember when we mentioned that can't hold parliamentary elections explicitly disallowed in in the Constitution itself. And we pointed out that this does not apply to the president. So it is then unclear whether or not the law on martial law, which automatically extends the president's authority if his term expires during martial law, supersedes the provision in the Constitution that lays out the limited term of a presidency. Apparently, this is something that concerns Bankova quite a bit. Now, this is a question that could and should absolutely be resolved by sending it to the constitutional court. According to 
this article. Uh, it seems that Bankova and the Zelensky administration are reluctant to ask the constitutional court. They claim because the constitutional court would take too long to decide. That absolutely is a cop-out. It doesn't just seem like a cop-out. That's 100% an excuse. Constitutional court can respond in as much or as little time as it is deemed necessary. They're not like algorithms. You, you plug in, then you have to wait for the, the algorithm to run. They're humans. They can decision quickly if they need to. But uh, this this question that should be this constitutional question that should be resolved constitutionally, it, it doesn't seem like the Zelensky administration have any interest in pursuing that resolution. So their concern or their stated concern that they are technically an illegitimate government, and this is actually a quote from a source in the president's office, quote, we actually already have an illegitimate parliament, an illegitimate cabinet of ministers, and then we'll also have an illegitimate president, end quote. And this is the source referring to this constitutional confusion. So it seems like Banca's view, or at least the source's view, is that uh, the legitimacy of the Ukrainian government is already in question. It, again, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of evidence or reasoning behind this decision. The, again, the constitution explicitly prevents parliamentary elections from being held, so there is no way for a parliament to become illegitimate during martial law. And the fact that the president may become illegitimate, again, that is a question for the constitutional court, which I am sure will simply say that the law simply extends the constitutional provision to the president. And, and that's it. The constitutional court is not going to rule during law during wartime. Yeah, you the government should still have an election like that's simply not something it's going to do. And even if it did, public opinion would be so negative <laughs> that it wouldn't matter. So that's that's the the bank of us stated reasoning. Now, there is also a kind of hidden reasoning behind or at least what we can point to as a another motivating factor behind the Zelensky administration's push for presidential elections. And that is the fact that members of the Central Election Commission, the governmental body that is in charge of election administration, certain members of the CEC, the Central Election Commission, are known to be associates of the former chief of staff of Zelensky, Andrei Bogdan. Uh, Bogdan was rather unceremoniously kicked to the curb a few years back, and Zelensky is known at this point politically for holding a grudge. So it is. So one of the things that the Zelensky administration could use this law to do is to call for do a partial shakeup of the members of the CEC and replace Bogdan's people. To do this normally would require a vote in parliament, 300. They don't have the votes to do it. So it may be that the Zelensky administration is trying to do some backroom politics with this bill. But the, 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 but beyond the external pressure and this really nonsensical legitimacy question that, again, can be easily resolved with a single letter to the constitutional court, there's not a lot else to really explain Bankova's rush, really, to get these elections over. A source in parliament told Envy that this bill or that the uh, party is looking to vote on this bill by December 21st or 22nd, so in a little over a month and a half from now, they already want to decide whether or not we will have elections, and which seems, again, 
to be in a rush for no real reason. Yeah, so that kind of negates some of the criticism of, oh, Zelensky doesn't want to ha- want to have these elections because he it's knows literally the opposite. Well, no. He is he and his party are the ones pushing for this. Yeah, they want to have elections because they know they'll win. Uh, and there's nothing like an election. There is nothing like an election to reinforce your legitimacy. That is why Russia continues to have elections, even though the outcome of a presidential election has not been in question in Russia in the past 15 to 20 years. And just to put a punctuation mark on this segment, a lot of this information comes from, you know, sources inside the Bankova. And my personal opinion about sources inside the Bankova is that there are a lot of people there that are not very well disciplined, who often have very contradicting and sometimes quite silly motivations. The Zelensky staff is kind of a motley assortment of people, some of them more competent than others. So anytime that you hear something of inside sources in the Bankava, you really do have to keep that in mind, is that sometimes those sources are of questionable quality. Though I do want to note that the draft bill uh, is known to exist because we have a leaked copy of it at NV. And that other MPs from other parties have confirmed that they have seen the same bill. Oh, so yes, in, of course. So in this like, case, this is kind of. Yeah, the bill, it, the, the existence of this draft bill itself is absolutely confirmed. Of course, the rest of it regarding Bankova's motivations, regarding the time frame for all of this, this is all technically rumor and hearsay. But the existence of the bill itself does lead credence that Bankova really is pursuing this and pursuing it with rapidity. And that is pretty fresh news from the news source that we both work for. So, hey, breaking news there. Enjoy it. But is this counted? Have we have we scooped? Do we have a scoop? I feel like we have. Well, I mean, Enve, but we kind of are Enve. So I don't know what qualifies as a scoop or not. I'm Close to this, it. I'm going to call this a scoop. I think I've never had a scoop in my life. Decided this will be my first scoop. Sure, why not? Uh, so next, we want to talk about what is happening within Ukrainian politics and what elections would look like. And I'm going to begin that off by just saying the one, two, threes of how the Ukrainian political system works. So first of all, it is a strong presidential system. Uh, in some countries, the chief executive is an inferior power to the parliament. In Ukraine, as with many post-Soviet countries, power is more strongly in the hands of the president's office than it would be elsewhere. I'd also say the United States qualifies as a strong president system. Israel is a very weak president system, to contrast, where the president there is a ceremonial position. Um, it is on a five-year term, so like I said, the elections were supposed to be just a few days ago, really, so that would have been because the previous elections were five years ago. The parliament, the Verhovna Rada, is a unicameral parliament. There's only one body of the parliament that's not the House of Representatives of the, in the Senate. It's not the House of Commons and the House of Lords. It's just the single single house, the single body. Within that parliament, it is on a mixed list system. What that means is that there are two ways that people are elected to the parliament. The first is that there are single member districts, which is what Americans would be more familiar with. You live in this town, you live in this city, 
you vote for who your representative is going to be. Whereas the other portion of people in the parliament are on a proportional list, meaning you will vote for this party. The, the party will have, so if a party gets 30% of the vote, they'll get 30% of the seats. And they are able to kind of decide who they want to be in that list. So some countries only do the proportional representation. Some countries only do the single member districts. Ukraine does both. So mind you, Ukraine is looking to remove single member constituencies, single member districts entirely and go to a full party list system. But this has not happened yet because of martial law. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be the next election was going to have only the party list system. Um, so whenever that is, I actually, I'm not a huge fan of that. I do kind of like having the mix and match to see what comes out. But on the other hand, it will actually get rid of a lot of the weirdos, <laughs> a lot of the weirdos. One of the big issues and the reason that Ukraine has decided to get rid of single member constituencies entirely, even though, again, as to Americans, this might seem a little strange, is because you is because people with resources can, in fact, buy out an entire district for themselves. In British politics, they used to have something called rotten boroughs, which were constituencies that consisted of a single person or a small group of people all whom could be easily bribed by the candidates and pretty much guarantee that their candidate will always be elected or re-elected to parliament. Um, and the single-member constituencies in Ukraine have functioned similarly. A lot of them have openly pro-Russian MPs simply because there was no way to get rid of them. They could bribe a village or a council, get elected over and over and over again, and always enjoy the benefits of being a member of parliament, and of course, while the concept existed, enjoying parliamentary immunities. And again, this was a lot of the corrupt pro-Russian politicians did and still do, uh, which is why Ukraine is moving away from these individual constituencies to kind of reduce this corruption. Like I, I called them weirdos because there are the... Yeah, you also just get weirdos. That's that's very... Yeah, just, just some weird people. Not some even very weird people. Especially pro-Russian people. Just people who are off and strange and probably should not have elected office. Because the other aspect of Ukrainian politics here is that it is quite decentralized and local. Not formally so much. Formally, it is a fairly centralized government. But in actuality, the, the governors, the mayors... They are very, very powerful, and a lot of things come down to you know local power networks, local you know boss hog type type folks, and getting rid of these single member districts will limit their ability to uh, influence things. I think that is for good and for bad. There are some benefits to Ukraine's decentralized nature, but the benefits of the decentralization have been harnessed in other ways such as you know the territorial communities that kind of group villages together so they can be governed more more efficiently though I that's will note great that reform is not always great the suburb of kiev in which i live vishneva is grouped with bucha buchansky rayon that is a region centered around the suburb of bucha and it makes no goddamn sense 
because uh, Vishneva is like a 45 minute to an hour drive at least to Bucha. Like they're not close is my point. They are nowhere close. It is really weird and off-putting and uncomfortable because a lot of government services have moved to Bucha and are not in Vishneva anymore. And that's 45 minutes to an hour by car. If you do not have a car and are using public transport, that will easily go up to two or two and a half hours. It's dumb. Vishneva shouldn't be part of Bujanski Rayon. All right. That's my that's my super, super local take on this reform. Local politics time that Ukraine without hype. I did not know that because both Vishneva and Bucha are quite large on their own. Like, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't necessary. make sense. Vishneva used to be part of something called Kiev Svetoshinsky Rayon, which was like Vishneva and then like a couple of the surrounding villages that worked fine. Vishneva is a pretty big suburb. Officially, it's 30,000. The last time, the last time they took an official census. I think if they took one now, the num- the population would easily be double that because the con- rate of construction here is like breakneck. But why are we a part of Buchansky Rayon? It's just not comfortable. Okay, so so the the, the decentralization reforms have their their bumps as well. Then, even though I am broadly a fan, but now I want to talk about what these political parties are. Um, again, we're going to have to break these up into. National and local, but we're going to talk about national first. So first, of course, you have the Servant of the People Party. This is the party under Zelensky and his folks. It was formed in the last election, brand new. Many of the people in the party are first-time politicians. They literally held tryouts to see who would be who 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 are the promising individuals who want to break into politics that Servant of the People could snatch up before. They go anywhere else. And if this sounds like casting for a TV show or movie, you are correct. The process was quite literally that. Yeah. Well, Servant of the People was headed up by Zelensky's, you know, media empire. So it is a TV show staff who formed a political party. So casting makes sense in that regard. Because of that, I'd say that there isn't a tremendous amount of party unity, either in the sense of ideology or just organization. Many of them act quite independently of each other. Just by nature of how the casting worked, I'd say that as a general rule, they are kind of middle classy business type people, like small business owner kind of thing. Yeah, what we would call in Marxist lingo the petit bourgeois. These are small scale landholder landholders and business owners who aren't oligarchs, but will often have regional empires of some kind uh, that never had the clout or money to really break into Ukrainian politics before. Which is why you see a lot of deregulation and tax lowering legislation coming out of the President's Party because. Historically and generally as a trend, the small business owners and kind of medium-sized farmers don't really care for those things. Yeah, ideologically, you could probably broadly call them like Euro-liberal, like they're neoliberal in the sense of wanting deregulation, also broadly in favor of things like gay rights. Or at least can be bullied to be in favor of those things. Yeah, like they're not overly socially conservative, though there are members of the party who very much are. There is conservative caucus, or there was 
a conservative caucus. I don't know what the status of that would even be at this point. Well, it was headed it was, by the opposition platform. So, well, it wasn't headed by opposition platform, but it was basically a Medvedchuk project behind the scenes. And he is currently in Russia after being arrested. So I don't know how well that could stay together in his absence. But they did have some socially conservative members, but at the moment, their politics are edging towards the socially progressive and economic liberalization slash deregulation. Broadly speaking, that's who they are. And the size of the party, 235 seats. Every other party that we're about to list is plus minus 20 seats. So the, the severe domination of the servant to the people is nowhere near being challenged. Like they're such an overwhelming force that they cannot amend the constitution on their own, but they can pass any legislation if they want, if they can get everyone in the party on board. So the other parties that they are supported by but are not within a governing coalition. They're not like promised any kind of power for it. They're just, they generally will vote in favor of servant to the people policies. First one is the For the Future Party. This is basically the party of Kolomoski. Igor Kolomoski, we've talked about him in, the, in a previous episode in jail at the moment, but he is the major oligarch by of choice, the Epro. He's in jail by choice. He, he could, yeah, he can pay him bail. He can pay bail if he wanted to. He can he can pay his bail and not and be under house arrest. But he is in detention by choice because he does not want to post the bail. He can very easily afford. And though the for the future party is again dwarfed by servant to the people, be, I think there's a good time to talk about how Ukrainian politics in general, all these parties, with some exceptions. They're not necessarily ideological in nature. There will be an oligarch, you know, a hetman in charge of the political faction, and the political party forms around that one person. Uh, this is not ideological politics. This is personal politics, with the only exception possibly being Holos at the end, which is more of a liberal party. But so the For the Future Party under Kolomoski. Uh, it was a merger of different political forces that Kolomoski had made at different times. One of them is the Ukrop party, meaning Dill. It's kind of kind of an ethnic slur for Ukrainians that they took back and made their own, kind of. But the Ukrop party was kind of Euromaidan supportive party. They were supporting the Maidan. They're supporting the uh, the Ukrainian military in the early phases of the war. So... Different political forces emerged around Maidan, but they were largely pretty scattered and not organized into any one force. There was an argument immediately after Maidan of by the Maidan activists saying, are we going to stick together or are we going to go our own way? And basically what they came down to was they're going to go their own way. This may have been a mistake because within any of the parties they formed, they, any of the parties they joined, they became pretty minor players overall. They were kind of swallowed up by the system. So they're, I don't know how if they made the correct decision there. But on the other hand, if they did form a single political party, would they have been successful? Who knows? That is also maybe a no because they don't have you know the money, the systems that the oligarchs do. So the element of the Kolomoski 
faction of all that that he backed Ukrop, they became part of the For the Future Party. Next, we have Dov- the Dovira Party. Actually, let me check what you just sent me. Oh, just some bullshit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The fuck? Okay, whatever. Fair enough. Fair enough. The Dovira Party is just kind of a mix and match of people who were in other political factions and then left them to form their own thing in 2020. So no one voted for this party. They voted for these people in other parties, but they left those parties to form a separate party. And they are supporters of Servant to the People in general. That's why they were formed. Ironically, Deviria means trust. Next up, we're going to get more into the quote-unquote the opposition parties. This is not, you know, doesn't particularly mean opposition to necessarily the policies of the government, or that's sometimes the case, just the ones who exist outside of the servant to the people system. And the most important of these is European Solidarity. This is the party of the former president, Petro Poroshenko. Poroshenko, who lost very decisively to Zelensky in the last elections, but is probably the favored candidate to be a loser in the next elections as well. Uh, The European Solidarity Party, I guess you can kind of call it liberal nationalist in that they are very pro-European and are pro any of the policies that would lead to joining the European Union. But at the same time, it does represent something of conservative impulse within Ukrainian nationalism. Their slogan going into the last election was army faith language, which I thought sounded a little bit dodgy. But it represented a little bit dodgy, the, a little bit dodgy, but it represented what Poroshenko wanted his legacy to be, which was basically rebuilding the Ukrainian army, which was a very big achievement they cannot take away from him. Before Poroshenko, there was no Ukrainian army, or at least the Ukrainian army was maybe like 6,000 people strong of actual strength, not everything else. And But during the course of the initial Russian invasion, beginning in 2014, he built it up into something that was able to withstand the blunt of the Russian invasion. Faith is that Poroshenko oversaw the creation of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, gaining religious independence from Russia, and language, which literally just means the the various language laws to promote the Ukrainian language, but I took to mean more of a a broad cultural Ukrainian-ness that was promoted by his government. Some of the things that I like, some of the things which I don't. Um, And since the beginning of the war, Poroshenko has kind of been around trying to look like a potential um, candidate for president next time around. He has taken photos in army uniform and all that, Poroshenko at the front, but he just doesn't have the same juice as Zelensky, I don't believe. The Batkivshina party, fatherland party, of Yulia Tymoshenko, she was a former prime minister of Ukraine. During the course of the Orange Revolution, she was one of the leaders of the opposition, though her conflicts with other members of the opposition is sometimes blamed for the return to power of the pro-Russian forces. Tymoshenko is probably, sadly, best known in the West for having a traditional Ukrainian braid. She was she had one for a very long time, was very commonly photographed with that braid. So if you remember a blonde woman with the Ukrainian braid, 
That's Tomashenko. Yeah, I'd say their ideology, such as it is, it's kind of broadly populist and whatever populist means at the time, they're willing to change to meet that. They're they're pretty solidly pro-EU and pro-NATO, but quite frankly, that is an aspect of basically every single political power, uh, political party and power that we've described in Ukraine so far. Yeah, and I there's some support for the trade unions within the party. And the other th- only thing I'd really like to comment here is that it's the only political party in Ukraine that kind of operates the way that you're probably used to thinking of political parties. They have, you know, regional offices, they a lot of them have regional offices, but they have a much more of a kind of a party machine type system in place that is less personal than some of the others. Sluga Narwada, or rather Servant of the People, has attempted to adopt aspects of a proper political party, mostly so they can enforce discipline amongst their own members, which they have not been able to do. But their efforts have been markedly less successful than Timoshenko's has been in building Batkivshina over the years. Though, judging by Batkivshina's electoral kind of results, that party machine is not is not working so well. Yeah, she was in talks uh, before Zelensky came onto the scene. The assumption was that the last presidential election would have been between Poroshenko and Timoshenko. Zelensky shows up, Timoshenko gets wiped out. So she's probably not going to come back. She has a lot of baggage as well. Next, the the last of uh, this group is the Holos party. Yeah, so we talked about this party pretty extensively when we talked about Nemerov, so we won't go into as much depth then, but just keep in mind it's kind of like the liberally party. Um, but then, last up, we're going to talk about the quote-unquote pro-Russia parties. Now, under the Yanukovych administration, this was the party of regions. What they said is that they wanted to devolve power to the individual regions with the assumption being that then those individual regions would adopt more Russia-friendly type policies. That was destroyed after Maidan, after the criminality of the party of regions and many of its leadership fleeing to Russia and eventually aiding in the invasion of Ukraine, their traitors. But they're then replaced by the opposition platform party or the or the Apple Bloc party. There's a few different arrangements that they had. And it kind of Due to the various splits in the oligarchs involved, that we it's too kind of confusing to go into super detail with. But then with the invasion, the full-scale invasion, there was the banning of certain political parties that were hostile to Ukraine and were aiding Russia, which was the end of the opposition platform in Oppobloc. However, people who no one was kicked out of their seats in government, the party structure. The kind of official organization of these political parties had to be disbanded, but the people stayed there. And any of the people who remained loyal to Ukraine, and most of them did remain loyal to Ukraine, simply formed up new political parties. So when you hear about, oh no, Ukraine's so evil because it banned these parties, well, they just formed a new party. Parties in Ukraine are transient things. They come and they go. It's not like banning the Democrat or Republican Party where it's, you know, built into the system of government. They just formed a new party. And these parties were the Platform for Life and Peace and the Restoration of Ukraine Party. The Platform for Life and Peace is under Yuri Boyko, 
again, this these are mostly people coming out of the Donetsk political clan. We talked before about how Ukrainian politics is heavily local, based on you no know, local, uh, you know, bigwigs. And many of these people in Donetsk, the Donetsk political clan was always extremely, extremely influential. And Yuri Boyko, who leads this party, is from that milieu. Restoration of Ukraine, Maxim Efimov, is actually from the Poroshenko bloc, Poroshenko's political party, but he scraped together some of the other members of opposition platform as well. And what does it mean for these parties to be quote-unquote pro-Russia? Well, basically nothing. Not anymore. Not anymore, of course. That's just not political stance that anyone can have. And those who remain loyal, and again, I really have to emphasize that most of them did remain loyal. Most of what that means is that they're kind of keeping their head down and seeing where the political winds are going to blow. Yeah, we say remain loyal. What we mean is value their own skin. Well, that is still a choice that is that was still a choice that they made because many of their colleagues made the opposite decision in fleeing to Russia in going to the occupied territories uh, to become, you know, occupation authority figures. So let's not downplay the fact that these people did remain loyal. But this goes to why having an election would be difficult is because this political party, where pretty much everyone who voted for it was based in either Donbass or you know, the adjacent areas, Kharkiv, Saporizhia region, that are currently under occupation. Their entire political base at the moment is under imminent threat of death is, or on the other hand, refugees. If there is going to be an parliamentary election, which for reasons what you said, there can't be one, these parties would be wiped out entirely. So the fact that they remain in parliament and not have elections means that there is more representation for not only people living in occupied territories, but also for people who uh, are more, you know, Russian speaking, more historical connections to Russia. They would not have political representation if there was another election, which is kind of the opposite that people complain about. And as distasteful as I find the opposition platform and generally everything about them, I think it would be unfair to not note that they were, prior to the full-scale invasion, the second largest party in the country, and they were very quickly rising in the polls. It is very possible that they may have been able to gain the majority, not an absolute majority, but they may have been able to gain more seats than serving the people had we still been in peacetime. And because they represented such a large amount of people who did vote them into power, Ukrainian elections are generally free and fair. Uh, not having anyone from that block to be represented uh, would absolutely represent just ignoring of what could have been the the strongest political force in the country. That that those constituencies, those voters, as much as I don't like this party and I prefer its non-existence. They still need to be able to come together in a new political in a new political power and move and have their views and their voice heard in parliament, which, again, if you were to have an election now, that's that simply wouldn't happen. These these people would effectively just not be able to speak. And that 
is actually a good segue to what I wanted to be the finals section is if there was an election, what would be the results? So keeping this in mind to keep this idea going, if there was an election now with, you know, the line of control being where it is, what happens to the pro-Russia vote or what was the pro-Russia vote? Because the other topic that we've kind of touched on from time to time, but haven't really gone into super depth with is how the, the phenomenon of a pro-Russian or pro-Russian or Russia-philic or uh, Ukrainian in some way connected to what they see as Russia culturally or economically. We what we've seen from that section of the populace is many of them losing those good feelings for Russia for very obvious reasons. Those are the people who are concentrated in the areas that have been most devastated by Russia. Those are the people who are being killed by Russia the most, who are had their lives most affected by the Russian invasion, whereas the more quote-unquote pro-Ukrainian part of Ukraine that is more associated with you know the West has been less affected by the war, which is kind of one of the grim ironies of Russia saying that's coming in to protect the Russian population. But what do you see as the political future of this group of people? I don't think that they will dissolve as a voting bloc entirely. A couple of facts have to be faced here. The first off is that the industrial capacity of eastern Ukraine has been raised. The, the, mass, the, the legacy Soviet heavy industry that fueled, uh, that beyond mining, fueled the, the economic engine of eastern Ukraine is gone. It will likely never come back. Um, what that means is these these oblasts, even after the end of martial law and the return of refugees, are likely going to be heavily, heavily depopulated. Integrating Donetsk and Luhansk is going to take a long time. It is likely that residents in Donetsk and Luhansk will be uh, firewalled off from the greater Ukrainian electorate simply because there's time is going to be needed to go through truth and reconciliation commissions to for the security services to ensure that there are no secret saboteurs hidden amongst the population, which there likely will be. There's going to, it's going to take a lot of time to bring Donetsk and Luhansk alone back into Ukraine proper. And again, the, the industry of the region has been, Donbass has been like obliterated. Whatever it's just not a livable place to be. Yeah. If Ukraine Even, won the war tomorrow, pushed all the way to the the state border with Russia, people are able to go back home. Quote unquote, would they be able to go back home? These hundreds of thousands of kilometers are minefields. The Russians love le- leaving uh, sabotage uh, and explosives everywhere. The shell, like the the heavy mineral composition of the soil and air is damaged because of all of the guns and weapons and shells that are going to be polluting these places for basically centuries. So as, as a block, the, the, so the economic, um, the economic engine of Donbass is gone. People will not return in the numbers that they'd occupied there previously. And those that will return and those people that will be building a new Donbass they will simply not have the economic clout to uh, create and maintain such a strong and influential political force. A lot of uh, Anthony mentioned the the Donbass 
kind of clan, the Donetsk clans earlier, those are those are gone. Those those really big names that anchored the politics of all of Donbass, that's they're gone. There is no no one really coming in to take over except for Akhmetov. But given that Ukraine Ukrainians have been consciously moving away from oligarch-led or oligarch-guided politics, it's unlikely that any party that he establishes will be able to capture more than a, a fraction of that electorate. So um, going forward, the pro-quote-unquote pro-Russian, and here I'll, I'll say what I mean is, again, no one is going to be openly pro-Russian. No one's going to, or very few people, let's say, with a notable exception, which we'll mention at the end of this, at the end of this episode, very few people are going to be talking about normalization with Russia or that we need to make friends with Russia, but they will still advocate for the same sort of socially conservative policies that they have always advocated for against LGBT rights, against status given against status given to Ukrainian and instead of Russian, against decommunization. All of those aspects will, quite frankly, remain a part of Ukrainian politics until the old Soviet generations are no longer here. That's quite simply a fact. You're not going to convince a 70-year-old grandmother uh, to change all of her views. Uh, it's simply impossible. So until that generation is gone, there will always be that kind of Soviet heritage, Soviet nostalgic voting bloc. But again, they, they will no longer ever gain the sort of prominence and influence that they held previously. So they'll just become... Another kind of regional, uh, regional party, ironically, a party of regions or two, maybe three regions that will not be able to really have not be able to influence events on a national scale like they were before. And going back to our theme of local, you know, Tammany Hall style politics, um, that kind of requires a level of geographic centralization, too. And because people are probably not going to go back to Donbass for all the reasons you just explained and how the power of this region is basically done for, the vote of people who would have voted for party of regions, for opposition platform, are now kind of scattered around the rest of the country or in other countries. And they're just going to kind of fall into the political structures of wherever they ended up. There's no, there's not going to be Metov who owned as of Stahl and all these other big anchors of the Donbass sociopolitical scene. That's just impossible at this point. So I don't, happens with the quote unquote pro-Russia vote is, or Russia speaking Eastern, that kind of thing. That's kind of hard to describe, especially hard to describe now. Now that most of them have no love of the Russian Federation whatsoever, who knows what they'll do? We'll, we'll go back on that a bit. And so, number one question, would Zelensky win? Yes, Zelensky would in fact win. Um, not only, again, are his polling numbers pretty good, he has not committed any scandal so bad that Ukrainians have turned on him. Uh, and in a lot of politics, Ukraine especially, uh, you don't really vote for the candidate. Well, you don't vote for incumbents. You vote 
to replace them. But that only usually works when the incumbent has really, really screwed up. Incumbents almost uh, universally have very high re-election rates. In the U.S. Senate, for example, senators have a 94.5% chance of being re-elected. Once you're a senator, you've got the job for life, basically, or until you get bored of it, or until you find a lobbyist position that will pay you more. The same thing applies often to presidents as well. So you you really have to screw up bad as an incumbent to not get re-elected. People typically like to stay the course with their elected officials unless something is seriously wrong. Zelensky has not done anything that bad. He's had his share of scandals, and uh, the the servant of the People Party has, of course, had its share of scandals. He shuffles his cabinet a lot, but none of that is a deal breaker. On top of that, his most likely competitors, or his most popular competitors if they would run, would likely be unwilling to run against Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky is, by all accounts, a man who very much values loyalty from his political fellows, and quite a number of people, save one notable exception, again, that we will get to at the end of this episode, have stuck to this. They have a lot of popular people who've been in his cabinet or have been advisors or have been members of government appointed by him have kind of kept back from directly challenging him or contradicting the president uh, in a way that would seem that they are looking to grow their own political power. Obviously, in peacetime, this would be more popular. But again, I think if he declared his intention to run, that kind of loyalty would still cause people the most likely uh, his his most likely competitors to win to hold back. And you'd have the you'd have his challengers just be filled with basically lunatics. And it's important to point out the polling shows this. All the polling that has taken place in Ukraine shows that Zelensky completely blows every other possible competitor out of the water. And it's not even really that close. Poroshenko, Timoshenko, anyone else is so far behind him. Boyko, that it's really not a question whether or not he would win. Although I would say that you mentioned incumbency bias unless something happens. In Ukraine, it is important to point out that only one president has ever been reelected, and that is Leonid Kuchma. And there are questions about, you know, if he actually did win. How legitimate his reelection was. There has been a serious fatigue with most presidents, and if it wasn't for the war, it did look like Ukrainian populace had been fatigued with Zelensky as well. It's just that I don't think that any other one politician had the same possibility that he did, even without the war. There would be a, you know, a crowded field of people who would challenge him that would all get a significant number of votes. But when it came down to this Zelensky versus one other person, the pre-war polling tended to show Zelensky still winning. However, there's brings up the other question, would Zelensky run again? And I don't know if he would. Uh, he seems pretty worn down. And some of the sp- Some of the public statements from his wife kind of imply, his wife especially, kind of imply that Zelensky would not be particularly thrilled about being president a second time around, especially considering that he'll likely be in this position until the end of the war, unless he just resigns. So do you think he would run again? I'm in the camp of 
probably not. Honestly, he he um Zelensky's interesting twist on his character, I think that Zelensky has shown a uh market preference for centralizing power. And power is one of those things that once you have it, real tough to give up. Like I said, senators only do it when they are finally sure that the money is is good enough. And not even then, as shown by the uh, average age of the typical U.S. senator. So I honestly don't know. While you can see that Zelensky shows all of the physical signs of a man at war uh, for the past two years fighting an immensely powerful and larger opponent, he may just have a taste for the presidency and, and the power it affords him. He really does not like dissent, according to what we know. And he does prefer that things go his way or the highway. As president, of course, he has the ability to to kind of enforce that. At the same time, there have been plenty of interviews of him and his wife where they kind of lament that their marriage is uh, like that their relationship is strained simply because their responsibilities as first lady and as president don't really allow them to spend a lot of time together. Zelensky also has children that he very rarely sees. Prior to the election, a lot of profiles mentioned how much of a family man he was and how much he really loved his family. So those might be aspects that, that could push him out of Bankova or, or push him away from wanting to return to Bankova. But if he feels his job isn't done, if he feels that the only people opposing him are a bunch of jokers, and he would rather not have them running the country, then, then he may very well try and stay in power. I think it's also worth noting that Ukrainian administrations, incoming Ukrainian administrations, have a very pronounced tendency to pursue their predecessors legally in the courts. Zelensky himself has done it. Poroshenko did it. Kuchma did it. Everyone does it. And in order to kind of stave off the almost guaranteed legal challenges that would be pushed forward by an incoming administration, he would also have to stay in office for that. So there's there's a lot of things that, that could convince him to stay. And I'm honestly would he would run for re-election if given the choice. I think the main factor here is how long the war goes and therefore how long he is in office. If he is in office for, you know, multiple years after now that is a different Zelensky than even what we have now and a very different Zelensky from when he ran for office in the first place. And the other factor here is that Zelensky does have very pronounced strengths and weaknesses. His main big strength is of course, as you know, the performative, you know, war leader who's in front of the press in front of the people in front of foreign partners. He's a very charismatic guy. He's very good at speaking. He's very good at, you know, rousing people's emotions and all that good stuff, which is really what you want in a war leader. And that's why I'm glad he is president right now. However, his weakness was always navigating the messiness of regular politics. And post-war, in the kind of extreme mess of rebuilding the country, of by necessity local political leaders gaining more power due to the dis distribution of aid and reconstruction resources. He was never great navigating oligarchs and things like that. So it's possible he might also want to, you know, decide this is what my legacy was good. And going forward, I can only make it worse from here on out. So I think that is the, the other side to keep in mind here. 
And speaking of making uh, his legacy worse, we're going to move on to the so far only actual declared competitor in an upcoming presidential election. And that is a man known as Alexei Aristovich. Anthony, who is Aristovich? So there are a lot of other politicians in the mix that I think are real people that could actually have a political future. We have, for example, Vitaly Klitschko, mayor of Kiev. We have Vitaly Kim, the governor of Mykolaiv Oblast. We've talked about him in the past, very charismatic guy. And I think that there will be a good amount of people from the regions gaining political prominence, and he would be part of that wave. So keep an eye on Vitaly Kim. In the military, Zaluzhny is the second most popular person in the country. If there is going to be if he decides to go into politics, that's a very open door for him. Same thing with Budanov, popular guy, if he decides to go into politics. And because of some um, choices he's made recently about going back to university, I think possibly, who knows. Within civil society, there's Sergei Pratula, a very wealthy guy who started a very important a uh, kind of humanitarian project that's that has also aided the military in creating drones, for example. Very, very popular. And as the war goes on, I think that the future of Ukrainian politics is going to be found in soldiers, in volunteers, in these people who have put their lives on the line to improve the country and who will have a whole list of great qualities and deeds they performed. But so far, the only person who's actually declared his political ambitions is someone who is none of those things. And that is Alexei Aristovich. Aristovich, you could kind of call him a kind of Ukrainian-Russian nationalist. He had ideas in mind of Ukraine being the true. Mind you, that's not as crazy as it sounds. It's It's a relatively popular kind of, I won't call it ideology, belief amongst pro-Ukrainian Russian speakers. Not just in the East, but especially around Kharkiv, Odessa, and so on. It's, 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 it's a pretty, like, relatively popular belief. It's not as crazy as it sounds. Yeah, the idea of, you know, you, you, Kiev and Rus was centered in Ukraine, so it's kind of the real center of the Rus civilization, connections to people who speak Russian. It's it's like you said, it's a very kind of historically grounded belief that has been very popular for a very long time. So I'm I kind of phrased it jokingly, but there is that undercurrent and you can't deny it. But to him, because he is such a ridiculous person, he of course says it in the dumbest possible ways. He is very anti-LGBT, very socially conservative, and perhaps most controversially, he suggested that Ukraine actually sign a peace deal with Russia wherein Ukraine surrenders all of the currently occupied territory for a peace deal with Russia, and that's not possible. And saying that whoever replaces Putin will be more reasonable, and then we can get our territories back by talking to whoever is the good, reasonable person who takes over in Russia next. But 
most of our audience would probably best know him as a kind of spokesperson for the Ukrainian government in the opening weeks of the war. During the siege of Kiev, he would often be the ones being giving the updates about the status of the city, about uh, what Russia has taken. He was kind of the, the spokesperson news guy. And because of that, to at least a foreign audience, he had gained a lot of credibility, although internally in Ukraine, not so much at all. And he has since, long since, lost that spokesman job. And so on top of his broad um, lack of legitimacy within the political sphere in Ukraine, there is a more recent development that could get in the way of his political future. Romeo, what is that? Uh, that is the fact that he has admitted to having left Ukraine and he doesn't seem to be uh, considerably compelled to return. In a recent interview with independent Russian publication Medusa, Aristovich admitted that he is currently not in the country, explaining this by stating that he's a key speaker at a number of international conferences, giving him a formal excuse to be granted exception to leave the borders, but added that when you are being accused of a Russian spy by ruling party MPs, then that doesn't that doesn't exactly encourage returning. So it does seem that Erstovich has both left the country and will not be back for a while. On top of that, uh, several MPs have already stated that the SBU, Ukraine Security Services, have opened an investigation into him. So again, that's probably adding to the reasons of him likely not returning to Ukraine anytime soon, and thus not especially being electorally relevant let's say yes so that is the so far declared electoral opposition in ukraine who has sub one percent support and probably going to drop even more so although this is me from editing time in the time since we've recorded this episode uh, dimitro kolepa the head of the foreign ministry announced that the government is weighing the option of having parliamentary elections on time next year. Though, as we've discussed at multiple points in this episode, the parliamentary elections are absolutely not going to happen due to the Constitution, so I have no idea what he meant by that, though he only said that it would be on the table of a possibility rather than it's going to happen. Which means it's not going to happen, or at least I hope it's not going to happen, because it would be illegal for it to happen. So that was our quite long episode about why there will not be elections, but if there was, what would happen? Ukrainian politics can change quite a lot. We never know who will rise in political favor, especially as the war goes on. This very dynamic political situation. Like I said, there could be you no know, volunteers and soldiers and forming bold new political parties with bold new visions of what they want Ukraine to be. The question of Ukraine's European future is more or less cemented at this point. There is a broad consensus on that. There are more pushes towards social progressive policies. And really, every single element that we talked about today deserves being expanded upon. It's just that we thought that it's not talked about enough. And our initial reason for the podcast existing was to go into these national politics issues and to explain them to people who may not be familiar. So consider this something that we want to expand on in the future. But 
Until next week, I would just like to thank you all for listening. If you would like to support Ukraine, you can go to our link tree that we'll have in the con- in the description. If you would like to support us, you can share us, tell your friends about us, like, subscribe, uh, leave wonderful comments. If you'd like to support us financially, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ukraine Without Hype. Join one of our tiers, including our Discord channel, where you can ask us questions directly and ask for, you know, different topics that can be in future episodes. And I would like to thank all of our wonderful subscribers. Thank you very much to Deborah Grazer. The voices in my head are from Big Pharma, David Shepard, Dawson, Giorgio, Ivana Kokratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Dennis Napalm, Devi, Dimitri Litvin, Etienne, James Burke, Jan, Jenny Louise, Kevin Albritton, Marguerite, Michael Wickman, Mike Perone, Shieldwall, Silas, T. Bart, Vivek, Adam Poppenheimer, Ada McDonald, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Crystal Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Bavona, Grace Kraus, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jared Bate, Bradley, Jerd, Julia Lindsay, Laura DeLeon, Levy Grove, Marianne, Matt Miller, Melissa Caselco, Anonymous, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, RDK, Sandra Bongers, Sanjay, Scott Berry, Scott Gengris, Scott Tokeryuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, Settled Knife, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica, Victoria Leontaneva, and Wandering Lens. Thank you all very much. You're what make this all possible. So until next week, Slava Ukraini. Heroim Slava. <laughs>